Welcome back to season 11 of the Global Inquirer. We're an undergraduate research podcast based out of the University of Virginia, and we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives and international politics. We're sponsored by the UVA International Relations Organization. I'm your host, AJ Lorienti. Today, we'll be discussing the filibuster, one of the most influential and controversial legislative actions in the American political system. To learn more about this topic, I'm sitting down with second year intended public policy major, Andrew Chan. How are you today? I'm doing well, AJ, how are you? Pretty good. Let's get right into the questions. First, just to establish a baseline, can you explain what the filibuster is and why it's so important? It's a Senate rule that requires 60 votes in the 100-member chamber to pass most laws. A senator can signal intention to filibuster, which means to put the bill under debate for an indefinite period of time, and then 60 votes are needed to end that debate with what is called a cloture. The vote that precedes that debate is actually successful with just a simple majority of 51 people. It's overcoming that initial debate from the filibuster that is such a big hurdle to legislation and why people care so much about the filibuster. Um, The filibuster is also important because it's a substantial part of the legislative process and has, for a number of decades, been the reason, um, at least for many people, why a lot of popular and important policies have failed to be enacted. So you mentioned right at the the end there that some policies have actually failed because of the filibuster. That begs the question, how did the filibuster come into being in the first place? Right, so I really find this interesting. The concept of an official, an officially denoted um, period of endless debate has been around actually since ancient Rome. In fact, some historians attribute the fall of the Roman Empire to excessive filibustering in the Roman Senate. They just couldn't ever stop their debate. That led to ineffectiveness and ultimately the fall of the empire. Um, Another interesting fact, the filibuster, um, the word comes from Dutch for a pirate which some say is fitting considering how filibusters in the U.S. Senate can hijack debate. Now, in the U.S., the filibuster came about rather early on in the country's history, and it's based on the Senate rules process. Note that the filibuster is not ever mentioned in the Constitution, though. Senate rules have been revised only six times throughout um, history, which shows how difficult it is to do, and one of those times was in 1805 when the filibuster was created. Thanks, Andrew, for giving us a really interesting history about the filibuster, which I actually had never heard of before speaking with you. Um, Keeping in line with that, how has the filibuster changed over time, especially in the American context? And how is it used today? Right, so the filibuster only really came into use during the civil rights movement, and it was used by those who were definitely not on the right side of history. Um, The filibuster was used to oppose, to vehemently oppose, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, as well as many other civil rights laws. Luckily, luckily, the filibuster was eventually overcome for some, but not nearly all, of the pieces of civil rights legislation that were proposed. This legacy is why the filibuster is often called by its opponents uh, a Jim Crow relic. After the Civil Rights era, the Senate made a very interesting and very fateful change to the filibuster, and that is that they decided a filibuster would no longer require a senator to occupy the Senate floor and speak for the duration of their filibuster. They decided that a senator's intention to filibuster would be enough to shelve the bill and move on to other business, 
rather than having a senator actually make the physical effort to stand on the floor and filibuster. Some thought that this would speed up the legislative process, and it did for bills that were non-controversial. But it also created what we can term the silent filibuster, in which just the intention to filibuster stops a bill dead in its tracks. And the implication of this, and this is imperative to understand, is that the filibuster is actually limitless. It is indefinite. It can last forever because unlike what you might see in movies that romanticize the filibuster, no senator has to stand up and be giving a speech the entire time. And this has led to more common use of filibusters. Today, almost every bill can be filibustered except for a small list of exceptions, including budget reconciliations, presidential nominations like those to the Supreme Court, which was a recent change actually, and certain regulations passed late in a presidential term. And that process, um, the filibuster process is very common nowadays, as you can sometimes hear in the news. Well, thank you for touching on the ubiquity of the filibuster, um, something I would say is um, un undercovered in mm -hmm. today's discourse for sure. Now moving on to a discussion about the filibuster's future. Um, briefly, before we get into that specifically, can you tell us a little bit about the guest you were able to interview for this segment? Yes. So I interviewed one of my professors for this semester, Professor Bolden, who is a UVA professor at the Batten School and a co-director of the Center for Effective Lawmaking. I believe he's actually the perfect guest not only for this topic, but actually for me personally as an interviewer, because while I personally, and I will let this out here, lay it out for the audience to understand, I'm very strongly opposed to the filibuster, Professor Volden had a much different perspective than my own, and I think that's very useful. Um, I'll let the professor introduce himself here. Professor Volden, thank you so much for sitting down with the Global Inquirer today. Could you please introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about what you do at UVA and specifically your work with the Center for Effective Lawmaking? Sure, happy to, and thanks for inviting me uh, to participate. So my name is Craig Volden. I'm a faculty member at the Batten School at UVA. I've been here for 11 years now, uh, so one of the early faculty members in the Batten School. Um, and I've been heading the Center for Effective Lawmaking since 2017 when we actually founded that. Uh, the center is uh, an organization that's a dual uh, location, both at Vanderbilt University and the University of Virginia. Um, and our focus there is on identifying who are effective lawmakers in Congress and state legislatures, uh, understanding what they do to become more effective, and then helping us understand um, what sort of institutional reforms uh, might help legislatures um, pass laws that are responsive to what the uh, what their constituents are looking for. Um, so we do that through a uh, research community, uh, and then we couple that with engagement work. So we actually uh, present a lot of our findings to members of Congress and their staff. Um, we try to engage the public uh, through a variety of uh, media outlets, op-eds, and so on. We release our legislative effectiveness scores at the end of each Congress, so just released those last month, uh, so people can look up their members of Congress and see how effective they are. Our legislative effectiveness scores are based on 15 different metrics, um, but they're all based in terms of uh, a legislator, what amount of legislation he or she puts forward as bills, uh, how far those bills move through the lawmaking process. It's much easier to introduce a bill than to get it all the way into law. Uh, and we upgrade the more substantive and significant uh, major issues of the day and downgrade the commemorative post office namings and all so right. on. 
So I know this is a very heavy and broad question, but what are some of the key points in the debate over the filibuster? Yes, so it is very broad. You'll have to excuse me for going up, for running a little long here, but let's. I can separate the argument into three parts. Um, one part of the argument is whether the filibuster promotes minority protection or minority rule. In this case, I'm talking about political minorities, not demographic minorities of any kind. Um, minority rights are an important part of American governmental structure, and as a result, the U.S., in my view, is already skewed in that direction. It was designed to be that way. Bicameral legislatures favor the minority. A Senate with two senators per state, regardless of population, favors the minority, as does the Supreme Court, as does the Electoral College, and some argue, and I'm probably still among those people, that the filibuster on top of all of that is too much, and that it extends the protection of minority viewpoints into the ability for the minority to rule. However, Professor Folden made a very interesting point about this dichotomy that I presented to you um, between minority rights versus minority rules and, and minority rule, and here's what he had to say about that. I have a sort of pet consideration that I make when I consider the filibuster myself, and it's a distinction between the concept of minority protection versus minority rule. I totally agree with our founders' proposition of minority protection, but what do you think about the distinction that sometimes that can turn into minority rule, and as a follow-up question to that, to what extent do you think the filibuster uh, extends minority rule to a system that I believe, and you can also contradict me on this, that I believe is already skewed for minority protection? Yeah, I mean, I would go directly on that point to the filibuster. So uh, one might say that the filibuster gives any 41 senators minority rule, right? They can mm -hmm. stop any proposal uh, and it takes 60 to bring about a, a policy change. Um, you know, the, the interesting part there for me is what can those 41 senators do? So they can't bring about a new policy. Mm -hmm. The best they can do is keep the old policy, and so then we have to ask, where does that old policy come from? Where does the status quo policy come from? Um, and you know, one way to view it is it comes from all previous compromises, um, and so the nature of those compromises were at some point in time, there was a majority or even a supermajority that agreed that this was the particular policy, and let's keep it as you know that supermajority rule or at least majority rule uh, unless and until uh, there's a new view or a coalition or information at that level. Um, and so there may be reason to think that we should, you know, over-empower that past coalition, but it is over-empowering them. Uh, so I would give you that uh, fully, uh, that it's suggesting that we're getting neither majority rule here nor um, necessarily minority rights unless they're protected under that status quo policy. And we know that there have been a lot of biases in our policy making in the past and a lot of biases that we as a country need to think about overcoming. Uh, and if 41 voices can stop that, uh, that feels like it might be overly strong in some, in some circumstances. Um, and so it feels like that's the balance that we're trying to strike here. So in the like dichotomy that I proposed of minority rule versus minority protection, would you be in support of adding a middle ground of like minority oppositional power or minority delaying power that is not necessarily rule, 
or protection, but it's just this uniquely thing that is our filibuster. I don't know if I'd add it, but it seems mm. to exist, okay. right? Okay. Um, yeah. And so uh, as a good way to think about it, maybe there is something, some third, uh, whether we call it protection or, or obstacle in there. Somewhere along this, this spectrum. That's that right. So yes, the minority party is not ruling by passing any laws. They're only impeding the will of the majority. And I think that's up to the listener to decide whether that impediment, that stalling, qualifies as a passive form of minority rule, or if it is not, or if there is some in between that, that maybe my dichotomy is not covering. Um, now, for the second part of the argument, one part of the argument that actually favors the filibuster is that without it, policy would fluctuate too quickly as parties change power. Filibuster supporters argue that with no filibuster, each party that gains power will come in and drastically undo all the laws passed when the previous party was in power, and this will destabilize America. Opponents counter, though, that we can look at other countries that have legislators, um, legislatures but no supermajority rules and no filibusters, and see that they are just fine, at least on the front of this policy swing issue. Additionally, and this, this example is more applicable to us, we can all look at the individual United States, um, which offer a pretty good microchasm of America, and see that though those most of those state houses lack filibusters or any supermajority requirement of any kind, the states are stable and are not subject to undue policy swings. Professor Bolden and I touched on this issue, and here's some of that conversation. We could imagine also uh, something where the policy would swing dramatically uh, from a very liberal position to a very conservative position. Uh, filibuster is kind of stopping that. Um, so it's not letting us solve some pressing problems, but it's also not causing us to have big swings back and forth. So sort of pushing back on that almost a little bit, in a reading that actually I had for your class, the CQR on the filibuster, which is a, a composite reading made up of many different perspectives. It's so, there's no one narrative to the reading, just for our listeners. But one point that I found really interesting was that a lot of state legislators do not have any supermajority requirements, nor do a lot of our Western European allies have supermajority requirements. And yet, at least um, in the perspective that I was reading there, they don't experience a lot of these wild policy swings, at least, at least to the extent that we might fear them in the way that they're described. What, how would you respond to that? Is there something different about the U.S. Congress, and specifically the U.S. Senate, sorry, that makes it different than those state legislatures and the Bundestag in Germany? And yeah, so, so um, the comparison that I'd make would be to the state legislatures. Um, when we go to other countries, we often think about multi-party systems sure. and parliamentary sure. systems, and those are going to operate just very differently. But the, most of the states are kind of structured like the U.S. Congress. Um, and there, the, the, the findings that we have, at least at the, the Center for Effective Lawmaking, are quite interesting in terms of when do we see compromise across the parties. Uh, so one thing that we found is um, because we provide a score for every member uh, of Congress, but also for every state legislator, we're able to see what are the conditions under which um, the majority party in the state legislature actually reasonably takes uh, the minority party's views into account. What we found is that the states where uh, the minority party is pretty much dismissed right out of hand, uh, they have a few features uh, in common. Uh, one is that the parties are really polarized there. Um, so 
very liberal and very conservative. Uh, and the second is that the parties, in terms of the size of a majority party, the majority party in those state legislatures that dismiss the, the minority party right out of hand, they're just barely above the 50% margin. And so this combination of we're fearful that we're going to lose control uh, and uh, we have a very different perspective than the minority party, that combination tends to be uh, one that's very dismissive of the other party. And so in the states where this hasn't been much of a problem, they take both sides into consideration, we don't see dramatic policy swings, uh, that tends to be the states where the minority and the majority party are uh, both having a seat at the table. And the final aspect of the debate that I'll touch on is the practical aspect, which considers whether or not the filibuster is an effective tool for legislative compromise. Some note that a supermajority requirement for legislation has created stronger and more durable legislation over time. Social Security, Medicare, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the 1964 Civil Rights Act, just to name a few, are examples of lasting policies that have been passed with the filibuster. Proponents make this point and assert that the filibuster makes policies that the minority party can buy into, and thus policies that are less likely to be overturned. However, and I would really like to stress this point, one should consider today's hyper-polarized political climate and ask if it is still reasonable to assume that the filibuster can cause moderates to work across the aisle. Additionally, I'd like to point out that since the filibuster is no longer a standing filibuster like it was during the civil rights era, I would caution people against believing that the same type of compromise will eventually be made. Professor Bolden and I spent a great deal of time discussing the filibuster's legislative effectiveness, as that is what his center is designed to analyze, and here are a few parts of our back and forth on the topic. From an effective lawmaking standpoint, which I think you're uniquely positioned to sort of talk about with your work here, what does the filibuster do for us in, in that sense? Can you lay out the pros and cons of the filibuster? Sure. The way I think about the filibuster is kind of the way about I think about our overall system of separation of powers or checks and balances. Um, that is, it's one more constraint on the ability to move legislation forward. So how do we think about it then? Um, I tend to think, you know, do we need one more constraint or do we not? Uh, or under what conditions is adding that constraint helpful? From an effective lawmaking uh, standpoint, uh, effective lawmakers are the ones who can see the hurdles that are out there and find ways to overcome them. Uh, and so we add a further hurdle uh, of a filibuster in the Senate. That means we have a greater need for effective lawmakers uh, and some kind of moderately effective lawmakers might not be able to get their legislation through. They aren't building the support. They aren't uh, gaining that 60th uh, vote in the Senate uh, and so on. And so uh, it ups the demand for effective lawmakers, um, but it fits into a system of checks and balances pretty naturally. Based on your knowledge and what you've learned with the center, does the filibuster, in your opinion, and what you can discern, because this is a difficult question to ask, increase the incentive for compromise and debate? Is the filibuster actually a promoter of bipartisanship? Or is it one more igniter of these partisan flames, particularly in the present context? Uh, my answer to that is it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, so where the filibuster is confronted as a policy choice in good faith, 
um, it, it builds bipartisan compromise. Um, it means that most of the time we can't move something forward with just uh, one party against the other. It is rare that we would have those 60 votes in the Senate. And even when we do, uh, parties are not just uh, block voters of all of their members moving in the same direction. Um, instead, uh, there's the idea that if we need to get those 60 votes, we need to find some compromise. And the way to find compromise in Congress is to look for a bipartisan solution. That said, I had the phrase in good faith uh, there and working to solve policies. Uh, and we know that Congress uh, individually, members of Congress, but also the parties themselves, um, are sometimes more interested in keeping issues alive and using them on the campaign uh, than they are in governing. So campaigning versus governing, uh, that sort of separation. And, um, and in those cases, if one needs a bipartisan compromise and that bipartisan compromise doesn't give us in our party what we would hope to achieve, uh, some legislative victory, uh, then maybe we would rather uh, keep it as a campaign issue, uh, not solve the problem, uh, not compromise, uh, but instead kind of beat the other party up for their positions uh, and hope to make it easier for us to bring about a policy solution in the future uh, and or just raise more money on these issues for uh, their campaign funds uh, and so on. And so uh, really depends on what are the issues, how close are we to 50 votes or 60 votes yeah. for a solution, uh, and you know, how pressing is the problem versus how much is it uh, better, at least by one side, seen as a campaign issue. So talking about the difference between approaching the filibuster in good faith versus approaching it as a political leverage tool. In the past, I have in my notes that the filibuster has been used to pass some pretty good pieces of legislation in the sense that they have endured um, all of the party swings that have happened since their passage. We have the Clean Air Act, the Social Security Act, and the Civil Rights Acts in the 60s. They were filibusters and filibustered sorry, intensely, and yet they overcame those challenges and still exist today. However, in this sort of era of hyperpartisanship, or at least what I can perceive and some people perceive as heightened hyperpartisanship than in the past, is it reasonable to have the same optimism towards effective policies coming out of the filibuster? It's really interesting to think about what a high level of partisanship does for the filibuster or how those interrelate to one another. So you, you can kind of imagine, suppose every member of the Democratic Party voted the same way and every member of the Republican Party voted the same way. And suppose the parties were really polarized um, such that one party is very liberal and the other party is very conservative. Uh, in that case, uh, what does the filibuster give us, it pretty much gives us gridlock. Uh, there's no way to overcome that big divide uh, in a lot of cases. Um, alternatively, getting rid of the filibuster, what does that give us? That gives us very liberal policies half the time and very conservative policies half the time and maybe some really strong swings uh, back and forth between those uh, two extremes. Um, and so then it, it, it becomes a question of kind of what, which do we prefer under that setting? Um, and so it is uh, reasonable to take the position that um, of those, I would prefer no policy change, um, that we keep struggling with the issue uh, until we find a way to get both parties to agree. That may be true on certain issues. Uh, there may be issues that are uh, so problematic uh, right now that we want 
a solution now. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, uh, and you know, people listening would have to decide, do you want a solution now even if that solution is the Republican solution or even if that solution is the Democratic solution, the one that you don't mm -hmm. necessarily agree with? One thing that I would add, since we had the discussion before about um, the filibuster maybe promoting bipartisanship, uh, you need to find some additional votes in order to move anything forward, and it seems like the minority party is doing better in Congress uh, than in state legislatures that don't have a filibuster rule. Um, yeah, I, I, do, I would just want to add one noteworthy potentially noteworthy thought about that, um, which is when is bipartisanship good and when is it bad, okay. right? I was going to ask you, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I tend to think that on many substantive issues, working to get a bipartisan solution is good. And what do we mean by good? We mean that for any major policy change, there are some winners and losers. Uh, and a filibuster and bipartisanship points to the idea that you have to at least take the loser's consideration seriously. So you don't quite get everything you and your party want, um, but you get most of it, uh, and you also eliminate the really worst elements uh, for the other side. Uh, that sounds to me like good public policy and a good compromise in many cases. Um, where it is maybe not good is when they can't reach an agreement um, and a pressing policy problem just continues. So that's one possibility where it's not a good thing. Uh, and the other that I would point out is just in terms of how I've seen a lot of budget policy. So on a lot of budget policy, bipartisanship uh, tends to be, hey, let's just give a little of everything to a little of everybody. Uh, let's keep taxes really low. Uh, let's have spending go pretty high. Uh, and let's not worry about that. The deficits will go on to future people, future generations uh, even. Uh, to me, that seems like bad public policy. Okay. Um, and certainly one can debate the appropriate size of deficits, um, but we haven't really been debating that very much, uh, and the, the national debt has been rising. So in that form, uh, bipartisanship actually doesn't seem like a good thing. Um, so when I think about that in terms of filibusters and filibuster reform, uh, I tend to think, well, we want bipartisanship or that compromise building and so on on a lot of substantive issues. We might not want that bipartisanship on as many budget issues. Um, you know, maybe there should be a lower rule for budget issues, and it turns out there is. Um, so the reconciliation rules uh, mean that once a year, although they've been playing around with the possibility of twice a year, um, Congress can put the budget uh, on a reconciliation track that only requires uh, 50 plus one, 51 votes uh, in the Senate. So if I'm thinking about a filibuster reform uh, that I would tend to like, uh, it would be something that helps in that same threading of the needle. Let's promote bipartisanship on a lot of substantive issues. Uh, let's not spend as much time trying to promote bipartisanship on, uh, on spending and budget and taxing issues. Um, see how that plays out, maybe, uh, a little bit. Um, and the, the, the other type of reform that I would think about uh, is leading back to our earlier discussion, uh, which is what does it take to overcome the filibuster? Um, it takes effective lawmaking. 
so I would just continue to say the types of reforms we need are ones that promote effective lawmaking. Uh, and so at the Center for Effective Lawmaking, we uh, suggest a bunch of those. Um, and so it is things like um, finding ways to recruit and retain uh, experienced staff on Capitol Hill uh, because they help in the lawmaking process. It's about uh, gaining expertise of members of Congress, so really re-empowering committees to be doing a lot of the work there in, in setting agriculture policy or education policy or health policy instead of um, in a partisan way behind closed doors. Let's get the experts together. And, and those committee processes also build bipartisanship uh, in and of themselves. And so the types of reforms I would suggest uh, to deal with filibuster issues isn't to change the filibuster directly as much as it is to uh, change the ability of Congress and its lawmakers uh, to build up those coalitions. The added benefit of that is if you do continually work with others and have to work with others, that polarization does diminish. Uh, and so it helps get at some of those concerns as well. Evidently, there are trade-offs for any choice made regarding the filibuster's future. Our listeners will have to decide for themselves which option or which course they believe is best to address the urgent issues we now face. Thanks, Andrew. I wanted to wrap up our question with another big one, but it's an important one. If America decides to pursue um, the route of reforming or removing the filibuster, how could that happen? What are some alternatives, and how likely are they to succeed? So, to reform or remove the filibuster, um, it would technically take a simple majority of 51 votes, at least the way I and a lot of commentators interpret the law. Rather paradoxically, actually, the filibuster is not subject to the filibuster. The process for changing the rule is complex, and it's definitely too complex to get into here, but, but just know that it is possible. In terms of actual filibuster removal, though, that seems increasingly unlikely. Both sides of the aisle are very hesitant to remove the filibuster because both the parties recognize that eventually they will have to undergo periods as the minority. Very, very few legislators want to be the one to destroy the filibuster outright because the next time they're in the minority, they fear it. Now, to what extent policy revenge like this would happen after elections is unknown, and it's worth considering the conversation earlier about the likelihood of policy swings, how, how likely that is to actually happen. Nonetheless, the fear is understandable and, truth be told, is something that I think about as a Democrat when I consider what might happen to a Democratic minority without a filibuster. It, it is something I do think about, and yet I, I do still hold my position on the filibuster, though. Thus, the more moderate approach to the filibuster seems to be reforming it instead of just killing it. Um, still, even this will be difficult because 51 senators will be needed. And we have seen that even with a majority party, a unanimously united coalition is very hard to come by. Nevertheless, some reform ideas that might be proposed include um, reinstating the standing filibuster, which would likely lead at least to some moderate increase in debate instead of just passive delay, um, restricting the filibuster only to substantive policy issues, um, or shifting the pressure of the vote, which would mean requiring the minority to muster 41 votes to sustain the filibuster rather than asking the majority to get 60 votes to close it. It's just a psychological tactic to sort of shift the, shift the burden and shift the image of delay. Um, but of the possible reforms, the most likely involves increasing the number of carve-outs and exceptions to the filibuster. 
These exceptions have been made in the past, um, such as those made for presidential appointments, and if more and more continue to be made, the filibuster could experience what some sources term um, a death by a thousand cuts. This reform basically happens on its own as the different parties over time single out individual legislative topics to become filibuster exempt. Still, this described fate of the filibuster is far from certain. There currently exist very few filibuster carve-outs, just the three that I mentioned earlier, and to make any more exceptions would likely require a full united party, which, as already stated, is very difficult to get. It would be very difficult and risky to pursue even this very modest filibuster reform. And when considering the future of the filibuster, Professor Bolden had these points to make, sort of along those more pragmatic lines. Regardless of what would be your preferred opinion or my preferred opinion on what will, what we would like to see happen to the filibuster, what can you project will happen? Uh, I will project with high confidence that we won't change the filibuster rules anytime soon. Okay. Um, it seems like if we were following Senate procedures, it would take a supermajority to change those Senate rules, um, but they have found various ways to change them with a bare majority recently. Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, can we see a bare majority that wants to change to a bare majority uh, instead of uh, a filibuster? Uh, it seems like there's been resistance from a few key senators uh, and the swinging back and forth uh, between one party and the other party uh, having control means that it, it will, for quite a while, continue to be the case uh, that everyone will see, well, when we were in the minority, we actually benefited from this quite dramatically, um, and, uh, and they will want to keep it for that reason. So, the future of the filibuster remains completely uncertain, and I don't think that's actually too much of a surprise. We're, we're not fortune tellers here at the Global Inquirer. We're just providing you with information. However, the problems facing this country are almost certainly going to become more potent and there will be increasing legislative frustration across the political spectrum. As policymakers contemplate what to do about this frustration about the filibuster, they will consider the points about the issue discussed here. And I hope that I've given our listeners a, a good starting point from which to craft their own informed opinion on the filibuster. I think you most definitely have. Thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's our episode. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer. And thank you to Andrew for bringing us this story. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider following us on Instagram at UVA Global Inquirer.